We have two very special animal guests for you tonight. Both are hairy and have teeth. Please welcome Gary Hoffman. Listen, my teens and my 20-somethings, I get it. It's cool. He's the song of the summer. Shannon Farron. Hey, how you doing, darling? Talk about a ball buster. Gary and Shannon. And we gotta do something. And we gotta do it now. I don't know how this day is going to go. It feels a little weird. Yeah. A little weird. Uh, We have a great story coming up in the 11 o'clock hour. Both you and I spent some time in Seattle, uh, different times, uh, but working in that city. I was there for six years, and you were there for a little more than a year. Is that what it was? 11 months. Uh, A little less than a year then. So we knew about the the jungle, which was a, a homeless encampment that's been there for probably decades, underneath I-5, just south of downtown Seattle. There was a murder there. Uh, or I should say there was a couple of murders there. There was a um, three teenage boys, all brothers, who were accused of rolling into this homeless encampment in an attempt to rob and kill a drug dealer. And... It's been a, a whole mess of legal problems and questions, two mistrials, and the youngest of the three brothers was actually convicted of the murders. We'll talk about it coming up in the 11 o'clock hour with uh, a couple of reporters and a, uh, one reporter and a former prosecutor, actually, who have been following this case and have been putting together a podcast to follow it. That's a, It's a fascinating case. Well, the woman who has been described as one of the president's closest confidants, in the West Wing, Hope Hicks is testifying behind closed doors this morning uh, all about the president and uh, its investigation into pot- uh, potential obstruction of justice by the president. Of course, I mean the House Judiciary Committee. Did you know that the president would call Hope Hopi? That was his name for her. Hopi. She says. It's kind of a lazy nickname, I think. <laughs> Hopi? Well, what nickname would you give her? Beautiful? No, that would... I can't in 2019. You can't say that. You can't? I'd call her brows. She looks gorgeous. I mean, she always looks pretty, but she looked... Uh, as you said, her makeup is on point today. Well, I mean, just in terms of looking through the halls of Congress, there are not a lot of people who look like her. They said that she has been the recipient of the president's repeated phone calls, the witness to his angriest moments, and that she would steam wrinkles out of his pants... You're not going to make that joke. You're not. Okay. We're not starting off as seven years old. If we start off as seven, I, I don't know how we get through four hours. Why do I feel like the roles are flipped today? They are. Yeah. You should have heard him before we went on the air. Oh, what was I saying? Before you dropped that? some F words. Yeah, you did. Well, wow. if yeah. it was, if the F word was 
She fine. Then yes, there were a couple efforts. He Listen. hasn't stopped talking about Hope Picks since he saw her an hour and a half ago walking through the halls there. I don't blame him. She has a lot of information. The question is, is she going to be able to say Absolutely anything? Absolutely not. Now, she can testify to the stuff that happened while she was working for the Trump campaign. And has, uh, according to some of the people who have come out of this House Judiciary Committee room, she has been rather forthcoming and been able to answer questions about the meetings that she would have with then-candidate Trump. She would talk about the meetings that took place uh, with um, Trump Tower, the one with Don Jr. and the Russians, etc. But there is a clear wall that's been put up by the White House. In fact, the White House counsel, one of the members of the White House counsel's office, sitting right next to her while she's doing this, and they came forward and said that she's not allowed to answer any questions about her time from the moment of the election, from the, you know, in the transition, all the way through her time in the White House. She's not allowed to answer questions. They say she's absolutely immune from being compelled to testify. And because of this constitutional immunity and in order to protect the prerogatives of the office of the president that the president has directed her not to answer questions during this time. They say that no other staffer has the potential to offer Democrats as much insight into the president's thinking and mindset as Hope Hicks does. Yeah, because even if Don McGahn, for example, the former White House counsel, even if he gets there uh, and is able to answer some of the questions and sort of flesh out some of the things that he told Bob Mueller's team, it's Hope Hicks who was with the president when he was talking about Don McGahn and discussing what it is that he wanted Don McGahn to do. So the the information that they're going to get from her today, it's probably nothing. It's probably nothing that they don't already have. She stepped down uh, from her role as White House communications director, left the administration last March. She moved out of Washington, relocated to Manhattan, where they say she kept a relatively low profile for the next several months, but kept in touch with colleagues at the White House. And they said at times she thought about returning to the administration, that she was quizzing friends last summer about what position she could have if she made a comeback. And then last August, she was spotted boarding Air Force One ahead of the president's campaign rally in Ohio. Um, But they said that for the most part, she's just been adjusting after three years in the Trump world, that it was all about Trump and that she was trying to move away from her life being all about Trump. Uh, Fox has hired her to become the company's chief communications officer. So now she's based in Los Angeles. At 30 years old, that's quite a high-profile position. Yes, sir. I mean, even outside of what what happened with the campaign and her time in the White House, that's a that's a spectacular job at the age of 30. Now, whether or not she gives any information, who knows? She, like you said, is probably the one who is going to have the most information that the Democrats would want access to. One of the others... Uh, maybe a step down in terms of the amount of information, but no less important, is Annie Donaldson. She is uh, the former chief of staff for former White House counsel Don McGahn. She was also referenced a few times in the Mueller report with some very important information. And she has been subpoenaed to appear before the committee coming up on Monday. So at this point, the House Judiciary Committee is saying that they would not find it acceptable If Hope Hicks doesn't answer any questions about her time in the White House, which she's not going to do, okay, then do something about it. What What are you going to do? Take them to court, challenge the assertion of executive privilege, then do so. Because the president has not yet claimed executive privilege. They're just talking about each of these different staffers uh, do not or cannot, 
I should I guess it's they do not have to um, give the information that they're being asked for. So then then fight it in court and let someone else decide it. Don't just sit there and say I, Ted Lou from California, the great congressman, is standing there saying this is an this is an abortion of justice. And we what did you expect? You knew this. You knew this was going to happen. So you can't go out there and complain about this, knowing that it was going to happen. We have covered Boeing's troubles extensively on this show with the 737 MAX. And now pilots are airing out their grievances, including Sully. Sully Sullenberger, of course, the captain who land that jetliner on the Hudson. He is going to testify. He has been critical of Boeing, saying that Boeing was more focused on protecting its product than protecting the people who use it. We'll give you an update on what's going on with Boeing coming back. Gary and Shannon will continue. He just really gets into the music. Are you making excuses for his violence in here? Yes, because I do it too. You just can't see me. <laughs> Monica said, wearing a Nirvana t-shirt. Or is it a sweatshirt? It is. Sweatshirt. Um, at the bottom of the hour, we're going to get into what you're watching Wednesday. Talk about some of the shows that we've been seeing on the TVs. Petros, Petros. is going to join us. Yep, we're going to talk about The Bachelorette. Uh, oh, did you see one of the Bachelorette contestants was in the Dominican and yeah. got sick? Yes, I did. Who's not getting sick in the Dominican now? It's. it's I think everybody is. It's the new... It's Never the mind. new what? New thing? It's the, uh, anyway, we'll talk more about the Dominican coming up at 1220 because uh, there was a flight full of sick passengers that we'll talk about. Swamp Watch at 1230, of course. More on the president's big campaign kickoff last night. I watched part of that. And then uh, at... 11, we're going to talk again about this new podcast called Somebody Somewhere, a true crime podcast about the twists and turns of a murder case up in Seattle that comes with drug dealing, families turning on each other, homelessness, all of that coming up. Well, the president of the Pilots Union at American Airlines says Boeing made mistakes in the design of that 737 MAX and didn't tell pilots about new flight control software on the plane. Boeing designs and engineers and manufactures superb aircraft. Unfortunately, in the case of the MAX, I'll have to agree with Boeing CEO, they let the traveling public down in a fatal and catastrophic way. Yeah, that's Dan Carey. He is the president of the uh, pilots. The failure was that Boeing did not disclose the existence of MCAS to the pilot community around the world. Therefore, robust training was not conducted. You know who else is uh, testifying today? Chesley Sullenberger. Sully, the guy who landed that plane on the Hudson River. And he talked about the importance of training through what he referred to as the startle factor. I'm one of a relatively small group of people who have experienced such a crisis and lived to share what we learned about it. I can tell you firsthand that the startle factor is real and it's huge. It absolutely interferes with one's ability to quickly analyze the crisis and take effective action. Pilots had complained to Boeing for not telling them about the flight software until after the crash of the Lion Air jet in Indonesia in October. The same software implicated in the second crash that was five months later. 
Now, although some people are calling for the MAX to go away forever, pilot unions at American, at Southwest, at United stand by the safety of the plane once they were made aware of the software. So they're going after Boeing for not telling them about the software, which is absolutely 110 percent understandable. But now saying that now they know about it, that everything's safe, that the MAX is safe. Which makes me feel a little bit better. Well, I don't, uh, I've said this before. I don't think people were going to not fly on 737 Maxes, um, even, you know, when they do come back online and come back into service. And I've seen, you know, plenty of people. We've all seen people who have boarded a plane, taken a picture of their little uh, uh, emergency card, and said, I thought these were grounded. They are all, there are no 737 Max planes that are flying right now. But even if you were on that plane, and it was a 737 MAX, you're not going to get off of the plane. I, I don't know very many people who would. One of the problems with getting these things back in the air is now this new problem, whether pilots have enough physical strength to turn a manual crank in extreme emergencies. Yeah. there. I mean, you think about how computerized all of these machines are now where we talked a little bit yesterday about pilotless planes, about how much computers are responsible for flight time now in America. Well, in this case, they're saying that this uh, this crank in the uh, cockpit moves a horizontal panel on the tail, which can help change the angle of the plane's nose. And under some uh, certain conditions, including very high speeds the panel's already at a steep angle it can take a whole lot of force because you're you're fighting against uh, the air at that point it can take a lot of force to move the crank in certain emergencies so they're saying whether they're concerned and I'm not saying this it's them they're concerned whether female aviators well it has been proven strength. that women cannot develop the same upper body strength what as men what are you Daryl Gates now it's true. Uh, listen, it, they tend to, to yes, Science. have less upper Science. body strength than their male counterparts. Um, this I mean, a- it, between you and I, I clearly have more upper body strength than you do. But if you worked at it, if you actually worked at it, then you would probably develop more upper body strength than I do. How would you judge upper body strength? <laughs> oh, there's a... A litany of... A myriad of ways. Yeah. Plethora. Go ahead. Name one. Well, uh, we could have a plank contest. That's not upper That's body abdominal strength. abdominal strength, which... Push-ups? Push-ups. We could do push-ups. Okay. Pull-ups? Are we, are we, are we doing this? I'm, you tell I mean, me. I'll do You're a push-up the one who, contest You just laid you right out now. a challenge. You just... Uh, I will do... A blatant, uh, yeah. bald-faced challenge. Throwing it out there. About Facebook upper body strength. Coming in the break. Here we go. It yeah. was the I elephant like in the room. This. What was the elephant in the room? The fact that, you know, <laughs> I, uh, weak, Gary. I uh, have some, Nick, some upper body strength. would you like to choose one of those methods by which we can measure upper body yeah, strength? Yeah, let's do a push-up contest. Push-up contest. Great. Okay. We'll Are do we it doing what, how many we can... Bang out, or is it like how many can you do in sixty seconds, or what? Yeah. How many? Uh, well, you could decide the parameters. I feel like if we're just like how many you can do, then we're gonna t- people are gonna take breathers and stuff. So why don't we just be like boom, sixty seconds, or first set a number, or yeah, or hey, first to twenty five, or something like that. But that, isn't that just speed, not strength? 
or that's endurance of your endurance muscles too. of your muscles mm. all connected i'm gonna have to change my shirt because <laughs> <laughs> so we don't have a pull-up bar we really just have to do push-ups all right oh bob down the hall has a dumbbell we can curl 25s if you want how big is the dumbbell 25 25 <laughs> We'll workshop this. Uh, coming back, what you watching Wednesday? You want to do it right now? Are we doing this right now? I got nothing to lose. All so right, I'm fine. Ready. Let's you, go. You tell me. I'm going to go change my clothes. <laughs> Why do you got to change your shirt? Because I, I don't want to flash anybody. Well, she also's no one's gonna, watching. You you could put your head over no, there. So no one's looking this. at you. We're Facebook live. I know, but you could turn your whole back to the whole. You know. Um. Oh. No. Yeah, don't sweat butt. through that shirt I'm not either. Turning my back. Yeah. Thanks for Did that. You bring deodorant. Uh. Yeah. I have deodorant. All right. Cool. We're good. <laughs> this is a weird show. <laughs> you know you can't keep the ground from shaking. No matter how hard you try, you can't keep the sunsets from fading. Gotta treat your life like you're jumping a whole swing, baby, because the whole thing's really just a shot in the dark. You gotta love like there's no such thing as a broken heart. Yeah, I am. I'm like shaking. <laughs> you gotta love like there's no such thing as a broken heart. So that I guess that's going to live on Facebook, right? Is yeah, that, that felt is? good. Is your face all red? Because I just won a contest. I'm excited. It's right, adrenaline. Well, I didn't get to see you do your push-ups, so mm-hmm. if somebody wants to count her actual push-ups on the Facebook Live and see if she did 25, uh, that'd be awesome. So check that out. Uh, we have been following a, bu- a bunch of stories. Um, the UN Commission Independent Expert says that there is credible evidence to further warrant investigation into the possible role of the Saudi crown prince in the killing of that uh, Saudi journalist, remember, from several months ago, Jamal Khashoggi. They released a 101-page report today. Are you sweating? No. Oh. I'm warm, but I'm not sweating. Okay. Uh, The president also says he raised almost $25 million in less than 24 hours after he kicked off his re-election campaign. They announced it in a tweet this morning. By the uh, Republican Party chair. Hey, it's time for What You Watch It Wednesday. The following program is brought to you in living color. What you watching in there? Americans love television. They wean their kids on it. USA television much better. You've been watching too many of those live television shows. Well, we haven't watched a lick of The Bachelorette, but that's why we have the great Petros Papadakis. One of the most beloved men on the floor here at KFI, KLAC. Hey, is Brady Quinn coming in studio today? No. Ugh, no. boo. He'll be in Fort Lauderdale with his wife. Easy. I was just, I'm a Notre Dame <laughs> well, I'm just fan. Saying, usually guys that good looking, you know, they're not, they don't have wives. They're okay. S- they're still playing the field is what you're saying. At a certain point, no, no. They just turn on uh, uh, a guy... Maybe that 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 they, they're so beautiful that they have to find a man that looks as good as them. Uh, speaking of beautiful men, uh, did, did, <laughs> was that your wife who was in here the other day? What did your wife come in with you the that's other day? That's his intern, Olivia. That's Olivia. She's twenty. Yeah. What's the matter, What's with, matter you? with you? Well, no, that's what I was going to say. What kind of freak do you think I am? Well, I'm trying to Although, remember the last time I saw your wife in person. She, it's been a while, she, and I didn't think she changed that much. She doesn't look uh, that different from Petros's wife. Petros's wife is beautiful and blonde and uh, and tiny. Wife is old. <laughs> well, Literally. I'm not gonna... 
Hey, what's She's going on? Funny. I, I didn't. I saw her for like four tenths She's of a, a second. She's a type one diabetic. She can't drive. Hey, have, that's did, not true. She can drive. Have you and Matt ever done a? <laughs> <laughs> have you and Matt ever done a push-up contest? Uh, once, and he got really mad. What happened? Because I, I don't want to talk about it. Well, I'm kind of living that right now because we just did that, and this yeah, one. Back when I started uh, working there, Matt was really competitive with me, like physically. Even though I was fat, you know, he thought I don't know. He thought what? He thought he could do more push-ups. And what happened? He couldn't. So that was it. Yeah, that was the end of your story, Shannon? Well, no. Then, like, there was another thing where Steve Hartman, uh, there was a push-up contest, and I told him to shut up on the air just playing around, but he threatened to punch my teeth in on air. He used the F word, and I told him to come and punch him in, and he stayed on on his chair. You guys have so much drama down there. And this like, was like all, 15 all you, years ago. Like, and I was like, yeah, well, no, come over and punch him in. I just don't understand the drama when you're doing like hot takes. Where's Kawhi going to end up? I don't either. It's okay. a male competitive thing. Okay. That's why I don't compete in anything anymore, ever, unless it's dominoes. Got it. <laughs> I don't play uh, pickup basketball. I don't play poker. I don't uh, play blackjack. I don't compete uh, with other men uh, in anything other than dominoes. I'll play dominoes. So let's talk about the competition for our girl, Hannah, shall we? If there's a guy in a yoga class who thinks he's hard, I have to take him to task. You know what I mean? But he doesn't really know I'm competing with him. Ah, uh, you. but you, across the room, you know you're competing with oh, him. Oh, he knows, but he doesn't. But, you know, it, there's, it's easily denied. Like, what do you mean? I don't know. I'm in my own, doing my own thing. <laughs> You guys know what I mean? You yeah, know what I'm I, saying, I right, Shannon? I, I know exactly what you're saying. I am uh, competitive wherever I go, including yoga, even though you're not supposed to be competitive at yoga. No, it's supposed but, to be a, a non-judgment. But Matt was like 30 pounds. We were both about 30 pounds heavier. And it was about 14 years ago during the famous PMS push-up contest. <laughs> I don't remember seeing that. Huh. All right. Let's talk about men competing for I the long woman. you were up in Seattle oh, anchoring the news or something. been a long time ago then. Uh, let's talk about The Bachelorette. All right. Yeah. Uh, nobody likes this guy, Luke P. Uh, Hannah doesn't know because she deeply wants to have sex with him is what I figure. Uh, everybody despises him. He is a pervasive villain. And she, uh, she doesn't give him a rose. And here they are just trying to hash out more of their endless issues of uh, being unable to communicate. You were just talking in circles. I felt like... And saying the same thing you've said to me a zillion times. I'll I'll admit... You said then, you know what that means? It makes it feel not real. Yes, I can see that. I'll admit I froze up a little bit. But I just want you to know that I am crazy about you and I feel so strongly about you. And I just, I genuinely want to marry you. I could care less about anything. So, you don't uh, want to marry thing. her. You've known her for like three weeks. He wants to win. Back to the theme of male competition. <laughs> he wants to win. That's all he wants. That's what's germane to him. And he will lie, cheat, and steal and go back to all the platitudes he feels as if he has to address. Is he living up to the uh, to the villain label that we've Kinda, all given he him? Just a- He's just a dumbass, uh, and he's looked at these weird, overly expressive looks on his face. I mean, he just sucks. 
Uh, and the other guys just hate him. I mean, they absolutely hate him. So much so, and I know you've watched enough of this show, both of you, to know this, that it happens around the middle of the season like this, where everybody becomes so preoccupied with the bad person that they all end up looking petty in turn, yeah. and the bachelor or bachelorette, this case bachelorette, gets super pissed. And uh, here's Hannah addressing the whole room of men about their pettiness. I'm aware of some of the he's done. Like, I, and I've said it to his face. Mm -hmm. But I'm aware that you don't like him, okay? And so I'm still trying to piece it together. I'm tired of hearing screaming about something. If you just ask me, I can tell. Because um, obviously you don't listen to him, and hopefully you trust me, and I'll tell you. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. That sounds terrible. And then they go on and on, and they keep chirping at each other. I mean, it's wor it's worse than The View. It's worse than Behar. Uh, they, keep, uh, they keep chirping at each other, and she comes back and has, like, a full meltdown. Uh, and none of you guys even know me at all, all right? None of you know anything about me. It's the smartest thing she ever said. why I'm here. <laughs> I know why you're there. It makes me me and things that I've gone through. Right. And so, like, I don't feel comfortable in any of this because nobody's even asked. Because all we do is talk about stupid. <laughs> and so, like, I don't want to talk to anybody. <laughs> because at this point, like, I'm just, like, really defeated from all of you. What a, what Let's go moment, back to what, this whole thing about why she is there, though. What a moment of clarity for her to realize that none of these guys give a crap about her. Right. It's all about the competition. It's all yeah, about the... Yeah, hit her like a ton of bricks. It's all but about the, course, you know, Petros She will continue. And, uh, she's contracted to, to continue and probably <laughs> to have sex with all these guys. Uh, and, and they got extended a week, I think, because the NBA finals uh, fell on their show. Oh, yeah. So... They didn't. Uh, they didn't have enough content. They did a recap for the last hour of the show. That was all in the first hour, <laughs> and then Harrison was like, "We're going to talk to Hannah about how things were." And she almost quit, which is total BS. They just. Uh, and then, as a punishment, they took everybody to Latvia. Latvia. They're in Latvia. And they literally showed, like, one town square, like a close-up of a church, and they showed the guys drinking beer. And I'm like, oh, my God, these guys are in a factory town. This is so great. They didn't even show the hotel because they were in a freaking hostel. Are they, are, do they recycle producers on the show over and over again, or do they get new blood in there that comes up with ideas like, hey, let's go to Latvia? No, they don't have a travel budget. Everything they do travel-wise is free. I don't think they've had a travel budget in a decade so you know they promote wherever this place is and they go and and live it up or do whatever they they can do at that place drink beer in front of a church at a town square latvia. in latvia in latvia hmm. Hmm. now imagine you're in the shower at a hostel yeah and a dude like Brady Quinn comes in there i'm listening i don't yeah. sexualize Brady Quinn the way you do oh Damn. you got to look at him once he gets you, his eyes on you. I can only picture him in that his beautiful head is golden huge. He's helmet. He's like a big cocker spaniel. I mean, I don't think I've ever really looked at Brady Quinn, honestly. Oh, I've, now she's going to. I took him. I take him to yoga when we do games together. Yeah. And you know he's game to do it, and he's big, dude. He's like I six mean, four, two fifty, and he can move that big horse head around. Is that a pose? 
Is a horse head a yoga pose? I mean, he's okay. Yeah, when you do yoga with Brady Quinn and freaking uh, Santa Clara. That is a sizable head. That is sizable. Oh, I'm telling you. Yeah, that's a lot. He puts that head on you, and you got nothing. You got no defense. Uh, well, we'll we'll see in a couple hours. He's married you... to one of those uh, U.S. Uh, gold medalists. For what? Alicia Sacramoni, the the gymnast. Oh, oh, that's yeah. Right. They have two kids. Oh, they're very They live in the Columbus, together. Ohio area. What? I said they're very cute together. Yes, they live in uh, Columbus and uh, Fort Lauderdale. All right, good chat. <laughs> Thanks, Pete. <laughs> oh, uh, she's going to end up kicking Luke P off because he finds out she's been having sex with the other dudes. What? And she, and she screams, I have had sex. Wait, she's and had Jesus still loves me. Wait, she's had sex already before the fantasy suites? Oh, yeah. With these dudes? She mentioned oh, it to How Colton could she resist? Last season. Oh. With what? her sausagey legs. Oh, boy. The plumper your legs are, it's scientifically proven, the higher uh, your sex drive. <laughs> huh. Thanks, P. Skinny legs, no sex. Monica Ricks has an update on some news. <laughs> What's going on? Why the transition? <laughs> Shannon. You won, okay? You won the push-up contest. And furthermore, good Lord, I'm very ashamed of my push-ups. I've never seen myself do push-ups, and it's not pretty. It is not a good sight. Wait, I thought you won. Uh, no, I only no, did 23, because apparently I can't count either. She did 23 quarter push-ups. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I basically just... She dipped her bent, head down. I bent my elbows maybe a couple inches on, on each one of those after four. I'll tell you what so, you are the champion of. Of what? Trash talking. Because you walked out of that room saying, I love winning. I know. <laughs> I'm all talk. I'll talk over here. Marshawn Lynch. We've been talking about what you watch on Wednesday. You actually, wa- I have zero desire to see this thing. And I don't, uh, listen, I don't mind an Adam Sandler movie. It was kind of funny. I don't mind Jennifer Aniston. I think they can both be, you know, good. They were cute in that movie Blended. They liked the uh, chemistry between them, so they decided to pair them up again. And I watched it last night. It's funny. It's, it's cute. Uh, I just couldn't get over how great Jennifer Aniston looks. It's called I, Murder Mystery. It's, it's on could, Netflix. It's all I could focus on is how great she looks. She's, she's 50? I want to say, yeah. 50? Um, it's, it's a goofy, like, he's a suburban cop. She's the hairdresser wife. They get accused of a murder. It's sort of it's a funny. It's funny. They play off each other very well. I, why wouldn't you? Oh, you don't like movies like this. No, I don't m- mind them. I mean, I've seen this thing come up left and right on mm-hmm. Netflix. Every time I turn it on, it's like, hey, you should probably watch it's this. It's a fun and I watch. Go, I don't know. I'm with Gary. There's a uh, there's a uh, an account that said that 30 million accounts watched Murder Mystery in the first three days that it was available, which would be the biggest opening weekend ever for a Netflix film. They've been hyping it a lot. And well, those are two big stars on a Netflix movie. And those are two stars that you usually have to go to the theater to see. If those numbers are true, that would be the third largest opening of this year behind the two Marvel movies. Do you think that's likely? That a Jennifer Aniston, Adam Sandler yes, murder mystery? Because you don't have to leave your house to watch the murder mystery. Yes. Did they say whether the, whether these people completed the movie? 
Oh, that's a good point. Because I started I it. I didn't complete it, I'll be honest. <laughs> See? There's like 20 <laughs> minutes left. Oh, my a buddy of mine was telling me about this commercial he saw the other night for a show. It was on the MTV Movie Awards during that broadcast. And it was a show called Love Island. Have you heard about this? No, tell me more. Yeah. Remake of a British reality <laughs> show where it's like six six men, six women, but anything goes. You so it's can, just like Sex Island. Cheesecake Factory menu. Cheesecake Factory. Anything you want, you can get. And in the British version, they can be a little bit more risque, as crazy as that sounds, than we are. So in the British version, they have them um, – uh, demonstrating their favorite sexual positions with each other. Oh, yeah, there's no morality issues uh, over no. across the pond. Not at all. No, uh, uh, it's a cheesecake factory every day. And in ours, they can't do that, but what they can do is a make-out contest where you kiss everybody else on the island. And uh, <laughs> it's... I, I. What is that? What What's the contest? How do you win? Whoever has the... It's like Least a survivor. Penicillin at the end of it? I don't know. I have <laughs> no idea. It's like a survivor or oh. like a sex island. Yeah, you can I'll watch it out. that. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. You'd love it. <laughs> Is this season one or what? No. Or it's no, like season no. nine? I've just missed the boat on this. When, when we come back, uh, a new podcast called Somebody Somewhere about a murder and attempted murder in one of Seattle's largest homeless encampments. We'll talk to the two, uh, two podcast hosts when we come back. To Gary and Shannon. She's a California On this uh, Wednesday, it is June 19th. Coming up at the bottom of this hour, the latest on that shooting from last Friday night in Costco. Uh, learning a little bit more. It seems like we're getting just a bit more information every day about what prompted that off-duty LAPD officer to shoot and kill a guy and wound his parents. Former White House Communications Director Hope Hicks has arrived for a closed-door interview with members of the House Judiciary Committee. They are all about digging into whether the president obstructed justice, and they're probably going to get zero to nothing from Hope Hicks. Well, we have been uh, following this case out of Seattle uh, that has drawn a lot of attention and just a couple of months ago came to a second mistrial. And this is for uh, a group of brothers, well, two two out of three brothers, who are being tried now or were being tried in connection with a shooting spree at the caves, which we've talked a lot about homelessness up and down the West Coast. The caves is sort of a, a homeless encampment in downtown Seattle. I mean, just right off of one of the freeways. There There is a podcast called Somebody Somewhere. It was created and hosted by former prosecutor David Payne, as well as CNN producer Jody Gottlieb. And they join us now here on the Gary and Shannon show to talk about all the twists and turns of this case that remains still unresolved. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for making some time for us. Thank you so much. So glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Uh, let's go back to the original case. This was January 2016. Uh, can you tell us about the the incident, who was involved, and what exactly happened that night? Yeah, it was a pretty straightforward case in terms of what happened. And the evidence was that six to eight masked gunmen stormed this area that you mentioned called the Caves, which is up underneath I-5, our main freeway and was a, was a pretty major homeless encampment. Lots of tents up there and uh, different people uh, that had uh, camped and, and a lot of transients that, frankly, moved through that area. 
six to eight guys went up there and shot up uh, the encampment of a drug dealer uh, named Fat Nguyen up there. They shot everybody. They basically came in and shot the whole thing up. Three teenage brothers were arrested for the crime, and it happened on the night that the mayor was giving a major speech on homeless. And as you know, uh, you mentioned it in your introduction, there is a major problem here in Seattle with how to manage the homeless. So this happened right when the political environment was super hot. The mayor was saying we should need to increase taxes, we need to increase the property levy, and the shooting happens while he's live on TV. That confluence of events set off this uh, uh, amazing sequence of city reaction and counter-reaction, moving homeless out of encampments. And it's just a fascinating story as to what happened, not only in the crime itself and how the police investigated the crime, but in how the city reacted to it. So there was some confusion whether it was these brothers or other members, uh, higher ranking, I guess you could say, criminals of the Samoan community. Yeah, that's right. And so we delve into that and we go down into the jungle to try to find out exactly what happened. And as you mentioned, the jury has hung twice. So there's a fair amount of evidence in this case that suggests that uh, perhaps the boys were put up to the crime or put up, I'm sorry, put up to confessing to the crime. It's a more accurate way to say it because the police in this case sent an informant into the jungle to try to get confessions from these brothers and they quote unquote confess on the videotape. The big open question is whether they were put up to that confession uh, by the people who actually orchestrated and carried out that uh, crime. What evidence is there to show that they would have been put up to this? So here's, here's an interesting, I'll give you one snippet into that, and there's plenty. When the crime happened, one of the victims identified her shooter as a guy named Juice. Juice has not ever been arrested in this case. The brothers were the three people who were arrested, Jerome, James, and Joseph Tafalusia. And the way we got from Juice being named on the scene as the shooter to those three brothers being arrested was an informant came into the police department and said, Juice didn't do the crime. Instead, you should be looking at my nephews, which were James, Jerome, and Joseph. So Juice's brother-in-law is the informant. He comes in and tells police, don't go look at Juice, look at the kids for the crime. Wasn't there also... So they wire up... Yeah, I was just going to add, they wire up uh, these two guys and and they get video that is central to the case as evidence uh, during the trial. What was on the video? Uh, It was the boys... Confessing to the um, to the murder. You know, I, I'm listening to this, and I can't help but think of the Netflix series about the Central Park jogger and the Central yeah. Park Five and kids yeah. and confessions. And you know, whenever a kid confesses to something, there's always a little bit uh, in my head of uh, was it coerced? Was it was it a natural confession? And maybe that's just because of the Central Park case being brought to light because of that Netflix special. But Yeah, it's such a suggested environment, and especially with, with kids that are young. And, 
influenceable. So there was a three-day gap between the time of the murders and the time that the police sent this informant in to record the confession. Again, the informant is the brother-in-law of the person who is named as the primary suspect on the scene. So you have all sorts of these family issues going on between these various uh, parties. And, you know, it really begs the question as to uh, whether or not these boys were talked into uh, confessing for the murder. And there's evidence that is deduced in the prosecution's own case uh, about who shot who with which gun, which is inconsistent with the videotape confessions. Did Juice so, have a prior a, record? Uh, was there, were they, is there any evidence that they were trying to protect him from uh, getting a harsher punishment than the kids would get? You're going to have to listen to episode two. <laughs> I, I love it. Uh, yeah, good tease. Which, by the way, you can download the series at uh, somebody somewhere at Apple, TuneIn, and Spotify. So come along for the ride. We've got plenty to say on this. Now, I found it also on the iHeartRadio app as well. It's on the podcast again. We're talking with David Payne and Jody Gottlieb, the podcast hosts and creators of Somebody Somewhere. We'll come back with Jody and David in just a moment. I didn't know there was a way to do it where it wasn't obvious. Sure there is. It's just is it tactful, you know? Yeah. You don't have to be like... You don't have to... You don't have to pretend like you're, I don't know, waving the king or something like that with a palm frond on right. your eyes. The we, president has raised $24.8 million in fewer than 24 hours after kicking off his re-election campaign. The Republican Party chairwoman announced that on Twitter this morning. That... Uh, pretty much makes fun of what the Democrats have been able to do over the past three months. I was going to say, I think Joe Biden was was bragging about 20 million over the course of months. Yeah. And he got 25 in a 24 hours. Uh, we have been talking with David Payne and Judy Gottlieb, the uh, hosts of a podcast you can find on the iHeartRadio app called Somebody Somewhere. And it's uh, about the jungle murders. It's uh, this homeless encampment in Seattle as they were called, and it prompted a whole bunch. It drew a a big spotlight to this homeless encampment, but also to these murders. And as we were talking, David and Jody, the the three people who were accused in this case, three brothers, teenagers at the time, and the youngest was 13, he has been uh, convicted. Is that right? He has been found guilty. Of course, that was in a juvenile proceeding, so it was a judge proceeding. Um, And you know, a much different set of standards that are associated with that type of case. Uh, And, you know, he was a ward of the state. All all these brothers were uh, in and out of being wards of the state. They kept leaving their foster care, going back to their mother, who also uh, stayed in hotels and lived in tents and cars uh, down in in Soto. And, uh, but he was, he was, um, adjudicated, I think it's the term they use for a juvenile court rather than uh, found guilty. Uh, and he is in a juvenile facility now until he's 21. So where does the prosecution stand? I'm assuming that they're going to try this case a third time. When does that start or has it already begun? Yep. 
that starts in November. So the state's going to bring the case again for a third time. Uh, and then the case will start in November in front of a new judge. The judge that presided over the two previous trials has since retired. So, um, you know, we'll be back in the courtroom then. Uh, let me ask in a general uh, general sense, we here in Los Angeles have be, been dealing with homelessness. I know that Seattle has been dealing with homelessness. Um, uh, we were talking just a couple of weeks ago about that incredible documentary put together by Eric Johnson over at Como TV about Seattle is dying. And a lot of it concentrates on some of the issues that come up in this case and specifically in that area of the jungle uh, and these different homeless encampments throughout the city of Seattle. Do you do you feel like these are uh, a sort of a confluence of events where homelessness, uh, drug culture, everything comes together to make this almost a, a perfect story? Not in a positive sense, but just in the fact that the characters are hard to pin down, the the crime itself may be difficult to suss out exactly what happened, and there's no real winner in any of this. Yeah, it, it does create a rich tapestry to to tell stories from because uh, the characters, as you mentioned, are people that you would normally never talk to. They're the type of people you would walk by on the street and avoid at all costs. But when you sit down and spend time with them and hear their stories, it is just eye-opening. It's heartbreaking to hear why some of these people are down there. And there is this element, there's a criminal element that's down in there that preys on a lot of these people. These are people that have uh, through a variety of circumstances, uh, ended up in the jungle. Some of them voluntary, frankly. You talk about Seattle is dying. Some of them, uh, frankly, casualties of the opioid crisis, uh, drug addiction and the like. Some of them, uh, you know, have mental health issues. So there is so there are so many issues here. And, and the great thing about a podcast is you can tell a, a narrative story. It's not a... We're not doing a documentary like Seattle is dying and analyzing it from a third third party person perspective. We're really walking through our you know journey into the jungle, uncovering these stories, trying to uncover evidence and for the uh, case itself. You know, our goal is really to humanize these stories and uh, and connect with people that you wouldn't normally ever in a million years connect with. So. Uh, did you, David and Jody, did you spend a lot of time talking with people that were down in that area? We did. We did. We spent a good bit of time down there. I think that was one of our goals was really to dig in and connect with people and hear their stories in a really unfiltered, unbiased way where we felt like we wanted to to get to know the people that were living there and highlight their stories through this organic process. So we did. We spent a lot of time down in and around the jungle getting to know the community, which frankly ebbs and flows um, and is constantly evolving with people moving, either getting pushed out through uh, city sweeps or, you know, people who are newly homeless and are engaging with other communities. So there's really this incredible tapestry of people that try to support each other um, uh, and and try to help uh, them get through the daily struggles that they're facing. I always love hearing about the genesis of podcasts. Had you two worked together in, in the past or who came up with this <laughs> or, you know, who got on the phone and said, we got to do something about this story? 
We started that first season. Uh, we had worked together, you know, 20 years ago at CNN, and we we reconnected out here in Seattle. And uh, both of us were looking for some interesting story to tell on a completely different um, trajectory. And we found the Tom Wales murder case uh, independently, and that was just serendipitous. And that was great. And then after we had that experience, uh, we said, well, we ought to do this again. And uh, we we found this case, which um, I literally stumbled into a Kent County, uh, Washington courthouse one day looking for stories and found this one. And it was it's a doozy. It's as complicated as the Tom Wills murder case. Uh, just a quick question, if you want to tell me, or this may be a great tease for people to listen to the podcast. Whatever happened to Fat Wynn? He was the drug dealer that they were supposedly targeting that night. He survived the shooting, I know that, but what happened to him? That is episode nine. You were going, going straight to the end. Uh, he did survive. He did survive. He was not... Um, uh, arrested. He let's just say he is uh, still doing a lot of the things that Fett was doing before. Awesome. Well, that's great. <laughs> I'm glad we could help you tease that. Uh, David Payne, <laughs> Jody Gottlieb, hosts of uh, Somebody Somewhere, this new popular true crime prod, uh, podcast uh, that leaves uh, leaves you wanting more. I guess just more information about what's going on. And again. Following this trial, these two trials now that have both ended in hung juries and that third one getting ready to start up in November. Appreciate your time, guys. Thank you. Guys. Thanks so much for having us. And again, uh, Somebody Somewhere is available on the iHeartRadio app. If you download that and just type in Somebody Somewhere, you find it in the podcast section. All right, we come back. The latest on that shooting from last Friday at Costco. A couple of different stories now emerging about what happened when that off-duty LAPD officer fired his gun and killed somebody. Gary and Shannon will continue. Gary and Shannon, coming up at about 12.20, we're going to be talking about all the latest coming out of the Dominican Republic. A Bachelor star from a few seasons ago is the latest person to become ill. Fever, stomach cramps after her family trip to the Dominican Republic. We've got eight tourists dead under mysterious circumstances during the trip to the island. And like you mentioned, when we first started talking about this, I'd love to see the stats of uh, three years ago, just picking a random year, of how many people died vacationing in the Dominican Republic three years ago. And and then pick another uh, place where people maybe go overboard with their fun and, and see how many people die there. Like Mexico? Right. Or Jamaica? Sure. Or Grand Cayman? Or... Yeah, all of those Peru? work. No. Because you got to do that hike. you got to get there to Machu Picchu. Galapagos Islands? If you're going to spend the money to go there, are you really going to overdo it? Fiji? No. Are you just picking? I'm just picking places. I didn't. Okay. You didn't give me the signal to stop. That's it. Got it. Uh, <laughs> when we get into Swamp Watch at 1230, we'll talk about a couple of different things going on on Capitol Hill, including Hope Hicks testifying before the House Judiciary Committee today behind closed doors. Also, uh, at 1 o'clock, Alex Stone is going to join us. We've been following also a, a hearing where members of the airline industry, some very high-profile ones, including... Chesley Sullenberger, 
I've been testifying about the 737 MAX issue. We'll talk about that coming up at 1. We're getting more details about what happened at that Costco and Corona on Friday night when an off-duty LAPD officer opened fire, killing one man and injuring his parents. This is a situation that is under investigation by both the Corona police as well as LAPD. And there is video from the store, but dueling narratives as to how this went down. The officer's attorney says that his client was in a food sample line when he was attacked and briefly knocked out by this man, Kenneth French, who has an intellectual disability, it's called. Yeah, the, it. there's a couple. I mean, that's the beginning of it. And from that point on, there are a few, few things that we can kind of rely on having actually happened. Neither one of us has seen the uh, the surveillance video, but based on the accounts of both the officer's attorney and the French family attorney, something happened, a, a slap, a push, something that knocked the officer down while he was holding his one-and-a-half-year-old son. And uh, whether he lost consciousness, you would have – I mean, I don't know how you determine that, but the officer says he did, so I guess that happened. They say that the officer obviously did not know of this guy's disability at the time. Now, the – the family of Kenneth French and his parents, they have hired an attorney as well, a civil rights attorney. And they he says that it was unclear why his client, Kenneth French, or a deceased client, pushed the officer in the food sample line, um, but that there was a gap in time when the officer declared he was a police officer and this Kenneth French's father stepped between the two men and that the video shows that interaction, that his father is trying to intervene. Yeah, the officer, according to the French family attorney, the officer's life was not threatened and said that he believes the officer acted out of anger, not because he believed that his life or his son's life was threatened. And, of course, the, the French family would say that the shooting was excessive and completely unjustified. So we know that there was a a push or a slap or something that knocked the officer down. And we know that the officer fired his gun. Those are really the only real conclusions that uh, or facts that both sides can agree upon. One factor in all of this, it appears, is that Kenneth French may have either been off of or changed his medication recently. Yeah, they said he is normally calm, but he had a recent change in medication. And that would maybe also be the reason why he was acting erratically the day before when neighbors saw him running down the street for no reason. Now, if he's schizophrenic, the family believes that he was schizophrenic. If he's schizophrenic, that doesn't always present uh, when you start to have an episode. It doesn't always present violently. In fact, it's more likely that someone would run away from whatever thing triggered them. If it was a noise, a person, a face, a, whatever it is, they would try to get away from it as opposed to fighting it. LAPD Chief Michael Moore has said that uh, he said this before the police commission last night, that there's many more questions than answers at this point. The Corona police chief as well, George Johnston, said, in a very brief uh, statement that his department has interviewed witnesses. They have gone through video from the Costco, from inside the Costco and other evidence, uh, and that there is no time frame for when this case would be presented to the Riverside County DA's office. He said, our investigation has been somewhat hindered by not being able to interview all the parties involved, which 
if he's talking about the parents, the parents were shot and wounded also. The mom was in a coma for a certain amount of time. So I don't even know if they've been able to sit into the ho- uh, go into the hospital and interview the French uh, mother and father. The, the, the other thing that the LAPD chief Moore said was that at least one of the internal cameras there at Costco, the surveillance cameras, did capture the whole incident. And he said if, anybody, if any of the shoppers recorded this whole thing on video that they would like them to come forward. I don't think I don't know anybody who walks around Costco with their camera recording just general inside Costco scene, but maybe. BuzzFeed has it out for Tony Robbins. They have a five-part series of all of these hit pieces going after Tony Robbins, the self-help uh, motivational speaker, I guess you could say. And there's, uh, of course, some groping allegations. There's some racial slur allegations. And then there's this this other allegation where Tony Robbins is punishing people by making them drink unidentified brown liquid. We'll dig into it when we come back. Is this one of those kombucha things? Ugh. No, kombucha is delicious. Um, fermented kombucha, specifically. Isn't all kombucha no one, fermented? Yeah, no one has ever said what you just said you ever <laughs> in their life. Um, yeah, no, I, I went to a beer fair in San Diego, and I'm not big on the beer, right? And they had so all of these kombucha, kombucha stands, and they, yeah. it was delicious. And, yeah, and I don't think you heard Blake, but he mentioned craft kombucha. It yeah. is delicious. Yes. Craft kombucha is pretty good. So man. good. Moist, pulpy, mother fungus. No, that's not what that that's is. Exactly. What it you is. haven't what it had is. it. Uh, With a hint of booze. You know yeah. what? I'm going to get some delivered. Nope. Can you get alcohol delivered? Nope. You know what? You should Go make it. across the street. It's at Whole Foods. Yeah, they might sell it there. All right. Do I have time? You have tons no. of time. It's only 1140. All make, right. I'm going to go get us. a no priority. See if they have sparkling ones. Yeah. I'm going to go get some. All right. Okay. All right. Wait, and can you stop go. by the studio? I have a snack request as well. Oh, no. What? Fine. She's <laughs> taking orders. What are you, Postmates now? Absolutely not. Uh, Shannon's been working for Uber Eats in the meantime. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we'll come back to this Tony Robbins story. And I guess kombucha. Yeah. All right. Gary and Shannon will continue. seen the video out of Colorado, uh, that Little League game? Was that Colorado? Yeah. Yeah, where every, it turned into a giant melee with moms and dads out there throwing haymakers at each other. A woman uh, using a baseball bat as a weapon. The kids are running away from the parents in fear as they're brawling over a 13-year-old umpire's call. Holy hell. you got to ban them all. You got a Darwinism, that group. Just wipe them out. <laughs> you call the herd somehow? Yeah. Oh, okay. Wow. Uh, I-80 is closed in both directions in Nevada right now, uh, outside of Elko. I mean, not that you're on your way to Elko or anywhere in northern Utah, but th- there was a uh, a train that derailed that apparently includes uh, hazardous materials like grenades and small arms ammunition. Oh, so, what could go wrong? <laughs> so they've closed I-80 in both directions, just outside of Elko for everybody who's traveling that Oh, way. you know Tony Robbins, the self-help guy. He puts out books. He fills arenas full of people to hear his message. Well, BuzzFeed has gone after him. Um, they did a big story back in May 
that he uh, berates abuse victims, that he subjects his followers to unorthodox and potentially dangerous techniques. Some former female fans and staffers have accused him of sexual misconduct. He has vehemently denied all allegations and accused BuzzFeed News of just flat out lying. Now they've got a new allegation that's a little bizarre. Yeah, the loser, the loser game. Uh, New accusations that... He would have the people in these large seminars do some sort of a key task. And if they failed to do it, he'd walk out into the audience and put a giant L sticker on your forehead. And then call everybody up onto the stage who had a loser sticker on their forehead and tell them to drink this liquid. While he plays Loser by Beck. You know what? We should start doing this around here. You know, like Monica screws up her news or something. Mm-hmm. We put a big L on her head. Make her drink. Make her do a shot of kombucha. Well, uh, there's a video clip that BuzzFeed News supposedly saw. It showed him, Tony Robbins, berating a couple of followers who had failed at a task for being the worst team in existence. And as they stood on stage... Robbins ordered the crowd to give them the official signal, whatever that was. Oh, it's the hand gesture for L. Uh, and the video shows L stickers placed on their foreheads, handed that shot of brown liquid and told to drink it. He said, these are special shots that are designed to have a lasting effect for several hours. They will remind you what happens when you don't step up. Hmm. 1995. Now, it's coming back like a big wave. The suggestion is that this may have been laxatives. laxatives. Right. But they deny that. They say that these shots are pickle juice, apple juice, lemon juice, tomato juice, and a dash of Tabasco. So it's like a. Uh... It's like a wheatgrass shot. Sure. Something it's super like, simple. Uh, I used to buy this juice from this uh, studio. Uh, in Marina Del Rey. It's uh, it's kind of like a Pilates uh, on steroids studio. Okay. And they had these special juices, and they'd so- sell them for like, you know, $9 or something. And they were really great in like hi- rehydrating you after a workout. Sounds like one of those. The one that I liked had cayenne pepper in it. Why are you looking at me like that? I did not think you would fall for something like that. Well, I was living on the west side at the time. Oh, uh, you know what? That is true. I was a completely different person. I had uh, juices in the morning Hold and on. John and Ken in the afternoon. You didn't You didn't eat bacon then? No, I did. Okay, well. I've always eaten bacon. That's what I was going to say. Get, let's not get crazy. Uh, so what do you think? Do you think Tony Robbins did this? Do you think he was... No, I don't he think was, he was feeding people laxatives. I don't either. I mean, it's a chance you're going to get sick on whatever you drink. Uh, but uh, th- to me, this is one of the more minor uh, offenses that he has been accused of. I don't. I still am trying to swallow the idea that you would pay ten grand to listen to Tony Robbins speak. I was ju- I was just pulling up pictures of his appearances. Yeah, and those places, it's like a Laker game. I mean, it's it's sold out there. It is packed in those arenas. I he found something, man. He found something that. I mean, he's no Joel Osteen, but he's got something. I don't think Joel Osteen has ever called anybody up on the stage to make him drink something. No, I'm just saying he has a lot of followers. Uh, well, actually, yeah, Blake, 
You're right. Maybe he did. What? I mean, if he's if he's offering communion, I guess that would be. Different. That Joel Osteen doesn't do communion. Well, has he read the? Well, it doesn't matter. We can add that to the list of things. Yeah, he does excellent. He does do communion. No. Oh, that's. I don't know if he does or not. The I, list of I, things I, that what you don't like about Joel Osteen. Just as. I thought we were coming List from a place particularities. A place positivity. Of a, a positivity? Yeah. About Joel Osteen? About everybody. He's got great teeth. His hair's always in the same place. Excellent point. He's very consistent with his hair. And he makes and he makes Shannon happy. That's a positive, right? He does. Gary I and Shannon. I like continue. his affirmations on Twitter. All of our trending when we come back. Gary and Shannon. I love how the Associated Press labeled this story that just crossed the wire. This is about the Nixium leader, Keith Ranieri. We've done the story on the show before. That that New York self-help group slash cult. Been convicted. Uh, the case accused him of turning women into his sex slaves. But the way the Associated Press labeled the story on the wire is... Branded women. Because you'll remember that some of the women claimed they were branded by this guy when they were in the cult. Not cult leader, not uh, sex slaves cult leader, New York cult. Branded women is how it's labeled. Uh, Well, at the bottom of the hour, we're going to get into uh, what's going on with Hope Hicks. She has been answering questions about her time working for the Trump campaign, but has been pretty quiet about exactly what's been going on. When she was working in the White House, we'll talk with Serena Marshall uh, about that coming up in Swamp Watch. But we've got some other stuff going on right now. Time for what's happening. Well, you heard in Monica's news there, Chris and Carlo is covering this event. A group of people upset over homelessness in Los Angeles have begun formally a drive to recall the mayor, Eric Garcetti. I mentioned this a while ago, and I'm surprised that this hasn't happened. The mayor's got to get out on a weekly basis, if not more more uh, frequently than that and gives bless you give some sort of an update on what's going on with the homelessness issue it has garnered international attention and he has been vacant when it comes to being out in in front of well he did provide that open letter to angelinos last week that talked about how he is addressing the problem but an open letter is very quiet it's a very quiet response like and you who said reads that you've got to get out in front of it and and do regular updates from skid row or or, or wherever to you know let I mean? people know that you see the problem you see the depth of the problem and you have rolled up your sleeves and are fighting every day to fix it you know what he's got to do i think he's got to set up a desk on skid row temporary office Make it a tent if you want to. Set up a desk on Skid Row. Get down there and show the people of the city that you have any idea what's going on. It's not going to happen, but that's that's one of the things that he should do on a regular basis is be down there and be seen down there. 
Malaysia Airlines Flight 17 was the airliner that crashed when a missile shot it down over Ukraine, killing 298 people on board. Well, international prosecutors today have indicted three men with ties to Russian military and intelligence agencies and implicated a senior aide to Vladimir Putin. They say that the, they're going to get these guys on trial March of next year, which would be crazy. A tried in absentia. They're not going to be there, obviously. Three of them are in Russia. The fourth is believed to be in a breakaway region in Ukraine. But investigators said that they would seek international arrest warrants for these suspects and put out a call for any new witnesses who may have uh, some information to share. Who's that? That was Blake. Did you oh, my gosh. That that's all right. Was... It sounded like you. It was. Oh. <gasps> There's another you somewhere? God, I hope not. What if you're a twin? Ew! Jennifer Dulos' strange husband wants the cops to return his stuff. She, of course, is the mom of five who has been missing since late May. And her husband, while he's not been charged with her murder, has been charged with obstructing prosecution and destroying evidence. He had now filed a motion to get his Ford Raptor pickup truck, his Chevy Suburban, his Jeep Cherokee, couple of phones, computers, a server, and some external hard drives right uh, back. This is that mom of five that we have told you about at each turn as this case develops. And I believe we last checked in with Fotis, the estranged husband who cops like for the murder, well, who everybody likes for the murder, except we're missing a body. He went for a jog after being released from police custody. Uh, and now he's back at work for his real estate company. Yeah, they're having a hard and, time moving stuff. Yeah, his attorney says people aren't buying his properties right now. What? And if they are, they're offering to purchase them at far lower rates, and he's not interested. Well, what do you know? Uh, one of the stories that's been shared, if you haven't seen this video yet, it is a massive brawl that broke out a Little League game in Colorado. Forgive me for intruding, but I don't know if it's appropriate for you to be drinking here in front of the children. And it is 10.30 in the morning. <laughs> hey, I just like to relax. When I'm at the ball field, do you know what I'm saying? I guess so. I will chain you to a pipe <laughs> in a crawl space if you don't get on the bag. Uh, more than a de- <laughs> that reminds me of me circa 2011, 2012. Um, more than a dozen people began fighting after an umpire on this little kids. These are like six and seven year olds playing the game. Uh, a, an umpire made a ruling that the players had batted out of order. The umpire was 13 years old. And then the parents all storm the field and start taking out on each other. Only four people so far have been cited for disorderly conduct and fighting in public. Only four. Bella Thorne back into the news because Whoopi Goldberg said what we said on this show. If you don't take nude pictures, you don't have this problem of somebody hacking into your phone and threatening to release them. And uh, everybody lost their mind over this. Like, how dare Whoopi... Tell us not to take nude photos. That's how I embrace my body image. I was ashamed of my... I'm just telling you what I read on Twitter. I was ashamed of my body before I started taking nude pictures of myself. It's how I embrace... Self-care. What? Yeah. Okay. Hey, listen. Fine. Fine. Fine, okay. fine, fine. All right. You're if right. If that's what it makes you... You do you. Then that's great. But know that with that comes the possibility that some a-hole out there is going to find them and leak them. It's not blaming the victim. And that's what she was trying to say. Bella Thorne was trying to suggest that that blaming girls for taking the photo in the first place 
was sick and disgusting. It's just Whoopi saying this is something you've got to be careful of in 2019. Yeah, and it's not. It doesn't diminish the the um, a holery that it takes for you to break into someone's phone and then distribute these photos or hold them up for a ransom or blackmail, whatever it is. Those guys are a holes too and need to burn a slow death. But the people who don't have nude photos on their phone are also not exposed to that threat. Well, have you seen this new study about millennials and Generation Z people? They are turning away from deodorant use. There was a poll conducted this month by YouGov Plan and Track. I don't know what that is. Found that among 18 to 24-year-olds, nearly 40% said they hadn't applied deodorant in the last month. Can we do a quick ass go around? Because I feel like this is an issue that keeps coming up every once in a while. And I want to make sure that we just kind of establish um, sort of a baseline of where we are when it comes to this sort of a thing. What do you mean this comes up? Well, there's we, a couple days we talk when about I aromas. sometimes forget. Yeah, but still, I mean, this is... Which is why I have office deodorant. But you also have... When you when you realize you've made it as far down the freeway as you have, and you go, oh, crap, I forgot deodorant. You at least have that thought, and you think, I should probably make some preparations so that I don't destroy the office. <laughs> but this is suggesting that the, the other people wouldn't do that between 18 and 24 years old. Now Blake? we're all out of that we're all out of that window, but Blake, if you came to work without deodorant, okay. would you be concerned or self-conscious Very or much. a combination thereof? Very much so, yeah. Really? Okay. Yeah. Never smelled Blake, have you? Uh, no, I've never right. smelled That's Blake. Nick, cool. Yeah. Nick, now, I, if you made it this far and didn't have deodorant up in those pits, <laughs> would I would you feel be- I would feel self-conscious. Self-conscious, yes. yes. I've never right. smelled you. Never smelled Never Nick. smelled me. Nope. Never. Monica? Absolutely would feel self-conscious. Would you announce it like Shannon does? No. Okay, well, now I I'd will try say to this. hide somewhere. <laughs> when she announces it, she usually does have a backup of some kind. I always yeah. have office deodorant. you got to get out ahead of your smells, though. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah I, have, I have backup it. stuff well, in my well, bag, too. Monica, Remember that one day I wore that Monica. polyester shirt? Yeah. And I didn't get in front of it that day. No. I didn't smell anything. Oh, good. People say I smell like laundry. That's Which good. Which is good. Well, yeah. th- clean laundry. Clean right? laundry. Yeah. Yeah. yeah those... Gary smells like dry shampoo. Ooh. I smell like dry shampoo? Yeah. I know oh, what that's dry <laughs> shampoo. Got it. Yeah. I'm just kidding. I've never smelled you. Oh. Me? Either one of you. Oh. I mean, you guys all work in close quarters. I have my own little booth over here. So if I did forget, at least you can wouldn't I, have to worry about me. Can I just say that I've come into the studio before and I've smelled things? And I just want this studio. Yeah. Yeah. And I Ooh. just want to thank you, Gary. Yeah. Um, Whoa, I just spilled again. Look at that. For not smelling like anything. This time. Not this time. You're welcome. For being neutral. You're welcome. Yeah. When we come back, the latest out of the Dominican, more and more people are saying that they have either been sick or are sick now in the Dominican. We'll talk about that. Oh, it will also uh, introduce you to some kombucha. Nick went ahead Nick and picked really some up some? from Whole Foods. Ugh. Ooh, did you did you get a variety or what are we talking here? I don't know what's happening in that bag. Mm. Ooh, figure it out. I had a nickel for every time. I Monica, stop talking to people on Twitter. It's not worth it. Me? Yeah. Gary <laughs> and Shannon. Now will I'm continue. curious. Yes, Who did me I talk too. To? So I drive the taxi and the traffic distracts me from the strangers in my back. They remind me you, but I was late for this, late for that, late for that. 
Oh, that's delicious. Isn't it? I haven't tried it yet. Oh, let's do your first taste of well, kombucha. He's still examining his glass. It says, on a mission to inspire you to live an exceptional life, one that's bold, adventurous, full of excitement, a life that is rich with meaningful relationships and a supportive community. Simply put, to live cultured. It's not just our tagline, it's our anthem. Uh, what does it say what the ingredients are? It's over here. Oh. It's a raw kombucha, cold-pressed ginger juice, cold-pressed lime juice, rose hips, and yeast. Just tap, just take a, take a sip. It was the worst thing I've ever put in my mouth. What do you think? Very ginger-forward. It's good, though, right? No. No, I don't like that. You don't like that? I do like the lime in it. Yeah. Uh, Take another taste. Was it the rose hips? I don't know what that would taste like, but that is not a... uh, No. Is that similar to Hannah's plump legs? Blake, I don't know where you're going with that. Rose hips? Like Hannah's plump legs. No. Let's Doesn't talk do anything of, for you, huh? That's like a, somebody made a really bad Moscow mule. Like like the the, the vodka was okay, mixed well, with... We, you know what? Listen, we can agree to <laughs> disagree. I think something. it's delicious. All right. We'll drink it up. Dominican Republic is back in the news. We've got another woman. Yeah, people are drinking kombucha in the Dominican or something. Tracy McCraw of Madison, Mississippi, went on a mother-daughter trip and says she fell ill. And she was stuck on a miserable return flight filled with passengers suffering from similar symptoms. Okay, okay. It was a whole plane <laughs> of, uh, of flu-like symptoms. Oh, liquids. She says it wasn't like you usually go on a plane and you're leaving and see some other people sick on the plane. There was one lady next to me who was all bundled up and I could tell she was sick. It was obvious. It's like that. It's that flight home from Vegas. What is it, the Sunday morning flight home from Vegas or early Monday morning Monday flight Monday morning flight from Vegas is the worst thing <laughs> in the entire world. Sunday night's fine because you've had a great day. You're still... Uh, you still got a couple still in Still got you, a couple in you. Monday morning, I've done that flight a couple times, and it is the absolute worst. Everybody and there's not one bad. person on that plane who doesn't hate themselves. Everybody's got bedhead. They they fell asleep 45 minutes before the plane yeah, was supposed to take terrible. off. In those clothes, every somebody has got just a hint of, of vomit upon them. Now, I do think this is an, an issue, though, when we're talking about the problems with the Dominican and now people coming back from the Dominican. If you had your trip scheduled and you paid your money, et cetera, et cetera, you're going to go in there questioning everything, right? So when you come off of the uh, when you come off that plane or you you get on the plane to come for the return trip, you're hyper alert. You're soup. You're hyper alert. But I also think part of it is, gosh, do I feel okay? Do I feel sick? Yeah, I wonder if I feel. Yeah, I totally kind of feel sick. Psychosomatic. Here's the other thing: you're eating foods that you're not usually eating in Ohio, probably. So there's a degree <laughs> of like if you travel internationally or. You know, even to Mexico sometimes, and you're just you're changing up the stuff that you're eating. That can have an effect on its own. Right. The uh, State Department has tallied all deaths of U.S. citizens abroad from so-called unnatural causes since 2007. And when you compare those with the seven Americans who have died so far this year, 15 of them died through June in both 2011 and 2015 of causes like 
car accidents, suicides, homicides, drownings. In 2009, 14 Americans died through June. In 2016, the number was 13. So really, in all, this doesn't seem that crazy. The numbers do not include deaths from natural causes, like those that are suspected in a couple of places in the Dominican. Overall, death tolls are not even uh, are likely to be even higher. So a State Department official says officially, we have not seen an uptick in the number of U.S. citizen deaths reported to the department. Uh, they average, according to the State Department, the uh, there are an average of 2.7 million Americans who visit the Dominican every single year. And in a decade, 194 Americans died or were killed there, which is an average of just slightly more than 19 a year, which would make it out to 7.04 per thousand people. In all honesty, that's not a lot of people. It's just that there has been a cluster, and since they've been under suspicious circumstances, that's what we're getting into. But come on. Are you going to go to the Dominican anytime soon? No. I mean, I know you weren't planning it, of, but it... Not, I mean, I wouldn't go. I wouldn't not go because of this. Really? If you had a... Hold on a second. If you had a trip planned next week and you were going to go to the Dominican, you wouldn't think twice about it? I'd think twice, but I'd still go. You just wouldn't drink out of the mini bar. Exactly. Okay. All right, coming up next, Hope Hicks got all the headlines out of Washington this morning because she's been answering questions about her time working for the Trump campaign. We will go live to Capitol Hill when we come back and check in with Serena Marshall. Gary and Shannon. Coming up, uh, John and Ken are going to talk more about this. The uh, mayor is supposed to have a news conference today talk about the latest attempt or plan or whatever he's got bubbling up for uh, homelessness in L.A. Oh, did you see this? What's that? We've got a, a Secret Service arrest at the White House. Apparently somebody dropped a backpack, attempted to jump out, jump a bike rack outside the White House. Hmm. I wonder what the expectation was there. What, uh, how far do you think you're really going to get when you do that? Right. Hmm. Um, but it's it was on lockdown. Is it still on lockdown? I can't tell. Uh, immediately taken into custody by Secret Service uniformed division officers. Well, it was less than an hour ago, so I would assume they'll be on lockdown for a little bit longer. All right. That, uh, that begins what uh, we call Swamp Watch. Drain the swamp. We're going to drain the swamp of Washington. We're going to have fun doing it. We're all doing it together. Swamp Watch. Well, we saw Hope Hicks, former White House advisor, walk down those hallways headed into that closed door meeting to talk about her time working for the Trump campaign. But did she really talk about her time working for the Trump campaign? It's a great question. We'll talk about that with Serena Marshall, who joins us from Capitol Hill, covering the story for ABC News and for us. Serena, what uh, what do we know, if anything, about what uh, Hope Hicks was able to say today? Hey, guys. Well, that's a good question. She definitely spoke, but not as much as Democrats would have liked. She did not talk about her time working as a senior advisor to the president, but she did talk about her time on the campaign. And this is, for Democrats, uh, something that they want to hear about. While they're not con- content or even close to being happy with the fact that she is 
invoking that immunity that the White House said they would be asking for yesterday. Uh, it is the closest member of the president's inner circle to testify since the release of the Mueller report. Her name is one of the most frequently mentioned in the Mueller report. And like I said, some of those instances that they want to discuss with her did happen before Donald Trump became President Trump. So while there are some instances that they cannot talk about, things like that now infamous Trump Tower meeting, Michael Flynn and campaign finance violations, she is, uh, we're told, answering questions about. They said that she was always on the phone with him. She was witness to his angriest moments. Uh, She would steam wrinkles out of his pants at times, that this is the closest person to the president. Is there any other avenue that Congress could go down to having her answer their questions, or are they just SOL here? Well, uh, Shannon, they, what happened here is the White House invoked immunity. They did not invoke executive privilege, and there's a big distinction there, because if they invoked executive privilege, uh, that would mean something completely different for the White House. It's something they're trying to avoid doing because she did testify in the Mueller report. But asking for her complete immunity is something that has a lot of precedent. Almost every other president in recent memory has invoked executive uh, immunity when it comes to answering questions before members on Capitol Hill, because those members that are closest to the president, they, this precedent says, don't need to testify before Congress because of the separations of branches. And because of that, it allows the president to work on his priorities and, and have discussions that are open and transparent uh, without the fear of those being made political, for example. And so they're saying because of that separation of powers, because of that Office of Legal Counsel opinion, which stipulates this, she has immunity from talking about those moments behind closed doors. Now, it becomes murky because she did testify about those moments to Robert Mueller. So So with this subpoena, Democrats are saying she has to talk to us about them, but precedent when it comes to testifying before Congress also dictates that she does not have to talk about instances with the president. So what will likely end up happening here if they are fully unsatisfied, and I should point out that the chairman of the committee, Jerry Nadler, said when we asked him if she's answering questions, he said yes. When we asked why others in his party say she isn't, he said she's answering some. Uh, if, if he decides that she has not answered enough questions, they could issue another subpoena, and this will likely end up being decided by the courts. Like I said, that's an Office of Legal Counsel opinion that a member of the president's senior staff doesn't need to testify before Congress, but it's never been really tested in the court system and decided by a judge. Who would begin that process? Would it require the House Judiciary Committee to ask the courts to intervene, or how would that process play out? Well, Rep. Sicilian from Rhode Island has said that that is the beginning of what I presume will be litigation. So assuming that they're completely unsatisfied with the questions that they wanted answered, they would, I would, uh, from what he said, assume they would take this to a court and ask a judge to decide if that immunity clause uh, actually is something that she can invoke and the White House can invoke in this, in this uh, situation. All right. Serena, thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. You weren't the. She wasn't the one that dropped the backpack, was she? I no, she was not. Okay, good. <laughs> she's a different part of DC. Okay. Well, I mean, she's down the street at least. She's at Capitol Hill. All right, um, we'll come back. Give you a quick update on what it is going outside the White House, and a little bit more about the uh, the big rally last night where the president vowed to cure cancer and eradicate AIDS. Oh, and did you hear his spiritual advisor open up for him and talk about the demonic network? I don't understand that relationship. No. All right. Gary and Shannon will continue in a moment.
Darian Shannon. Someone's suggesting I try a kombucha float. That doesn't make that doesn't make any of what they're saying. Throw some better. ice cream in there? Yeah, no. Doesn't that cancel out the healthy properties of <laughs> Probably. There's healthy properties in this? Yes. Yeah. Get with the program. To fix your gut. It's not going to... My daughter did uh, text me to tell me to bring home kombucha and then said it's better than a fecal transplant. Oh, my God. Which I don't know how she would know. Well, she's going to be a doctor. Well, yes, but she's pretty much a doctor already. Right. But maybe don't bring her that kombucha because that has alcohol in it. I don't know why that is... I'm not a fan of any of this. Well, it's not for you then. I don't think you've had the right kind. I don't think, I think maybe maybe ginger lemon was not the way to go to try it for the first time. Donald Trump's campaign, re-election campaign, kicked off yesterday in Orlando, Florida, with Paula White, his spiritual advisor, evangelical sp- uh, spiritual advisor, I should say. Why do you have to get a televangelist-style spiritual advisor? Because you got to get those evangelical votes. Yeah, but I mean, why not just just an evangelical? speaker just a just somebody that you know i mean as a as a friend someone who's not super high profile like that except i i don't know she said let Far every be it for me to tell a guy who to get pick for a spiritual advisor blake is my spiritual advisor okay and and joel osteen two competing well, go on. Uh, yeah. Paula White got up there on stage and said, let every demonic network who has aligned itself against the purpose, against the calling of President Trump, let it be broken, let it be torn down in the name of Jesus. Yes, she did say that. Against the calling of President Trump, let it be broken, let it be torn down there in the is. name of Jesus. Let the counsel of the wicked be spoiled right now. According to Job chapter 12, verse 17, I declare that President Trump will overcome every strategy from hell and every strategy of the enemy every strategy and he will fulfill his calling and his destiny okay all right she got the crowd going she did and this was still like an hour before the president even took the stage um here's my issue with this from what i know i don't know everything i'm not as versed perhaps in the bible as paula white may be she was dropping down some some biblical knowledge there, throwing out the uh, the words and the Timothys and the Daniels. Job. And the, and the Corinthian 2 and all that sort of stuff, or 2 Corinthian. Um, you're, you're called upon to pray for your leaders, period. It doesn't say pray for the ones that you like. And I'm curious if she has ever prayed that uh, vehemently, for people that she may not uh, agree with politically, but who are over her in terms of uh, the political realm, the the human realm that we currently find ourselves in. That's the part that bothers me. She and anybody, it's not just her. It could be the other way as well. If you're praying for President Obama, how come you're not also praying for President Trump? If you're praying for President Trump, how come you didn't also pray for President Obama? That's the that's the part that bothers me, picking and choosing where you're going to apply your religious credentials. That that's the part that bothers me most. 
The president is painting anybody who votes for the Democrats in 2020 as radicals. This is going to be the narrative that we hear. He says that the Democrats have been engaged in un-American conduct, that the Democrats, Democrats, quoting here, want to destroy you and they want to destroy our country as we know it, that a vote for any Democrat in 2020 is a vote for the rise of radical socialism. Well, certainly a vote for Bernie Sanders would be socialism. Yeah. But Elizabeth Warren is all in with the capitalist vision. Uh, I, I'm uncomfortable with the uh, the uh, commingling of faith and politics like that. They don't have to. They don't. They don't have to exist separately. But but stretching to, to try to tell it, me what my faith tells me should be the political system is different. It that, makes you feel dirty. You know, it, it's it when you go and you think about your spiritual life or your faith, whatever. Politics don't have a role in that. Right. I mean, I can use my faith to determine how I'm going to act sure. politically. Sure. But then to suggest that my faith determines what a political network should look like or who I'm going to support. Then I feel like doesn't... you're being used for your faith. Like they they think you're like a sheep or you're dumb or something like that. Like, oh, because you believe in this. Right. You should vote this way. I don't like any of that. All right. Uh, did you watch any of that campaign uh, kickoff last night? No. I watched about uh, 30 minutes of it. And I got to tell you, the place was packed. He promised that the place was packed. Uh, there were plenty of uh, plenty of people there. The one shot that I kept coming back to that was just awkward was there were people laughing in the uh, in the crowd. And I wanted to know how many if that place hold 20, 000, holds 20,000 people, how many people were there just for the spectacle? They're not necessarily fervent Trump fans. They're not, you know, uh, they're not MAGA people. They weren't wearing the hats. But they're there for the event. Yeah. And I, I wanted I don't know how you would ever determine that. But I got to imagine there's a there's a handful of people who are there just because they want to see what that is like. What's that spectacle like where where one guy can go into an arena like that and and just whip up 20,000 people? Uh, when he pointed out Lindsey Graham and Marco Rubio, they didn't look like they were as excited as anyone else in that crowd. But they knew that that's sort of a, a price they have to pay. They have to show up at an event like Marco that. Rubio specifically, because those two, there was not a lot of love lost no. in 2016. No. So anyway, that's just we if it wasn't uh, if it was a surprise, uh, I don't know why, but uh, the president is going to run again for reelection. Apparently, a New York Times reporter called out Marco Rubio for smiling and chuckling at the event in Orlando. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and Rubio tweeted back to the reporter saying breaking like breaking news in an unprecedented move. A Republican senator attends a rally in his home state in support of the reelection of a Republican president. Yeah. Uh, of course, he had to be there. It would have been it would have been a bigger issue had he not shown up. Right. Why isn't Marco Rubio here? Right. Uh, we mentioned at the beginning there the Secret Service did arrest somebody today. They allegedly um, that person, whoever it was, dropped a backpack and attempted to jump a bike rack outside the White House there on Pennsylvania Avenue just about an hour ago, a little more than an hour ago. So the law enforcement agencies in the area, D.C. Metro Police, along with the Secret Service, cordoned off Lafayette Park. They closed Pennsylvania Avenue between 15th and 17th to traffic. There are bike racks located near the fences along the perimeter of the building. But at the same time, uh, White House correspondents were tweeting that the building had gone into lockdown. Some of the reporters were ordered into a briefing room. 
And uh, the president isn't there, by the way. He's on his way back from Florida right now, apparently. But uh, at this point, they haven't said, other than the one arrest, they haven't said that there's anything else going on. Boeing making headlines in D.C. today as well. We will talk to Alex Stone coming back after Monica's news all about Sully Sullenberger going after Boeing and what Boeing failed to tell pilots about its 737 MAX planes. Gary and Shannon will continue right after this. Ain't it funny how Gary and Shannon. Hey, coming up next, you heard Chris and Carlo reporting about the effort to recall Mayor Garcetti over the homelessness issue in Los Angeles. He's going to be coming on with us coming up next to offer more details about what that group's plans are. At the bottom of the hour, we're going to tell you the story about uh, Somebody Somewhere, a new podcast that describes a murder in a, a place called The Jungle in Seattle, a big homeless encampment. There have been two hung juries in this case and we'll talk about the weird twists and turns with a couple of people who host that podcast david payne and judy gottlieb well sully sullenberger the hero who landed that aircraft on the hudson back in 2009 returned to capitol hill today to talk about boeing alex stone has been following this story and talking a lot about boeing with us over the course of the last couple of months alex what's going on Hey, guys, yeah, this was a hearing to give uh, Congress a look into Boeing and into the MAX crashes and uh, to help them get a better idea of what needs to be done to prevent future crashes. And really, as we go down the road of the MAX one day flying again, we don't know if it'll be this summer or this fall or by the end of the year, but one day the MAX will fly again, and Congress has been investigating what went wrong. And very few people have the experience that Sully Sullenberger has being in a cockpit in a plane in imminent danger of crashing and actually living through it. Most people die in that situation, and he can give a unique perspective on what it's like to be in there. And He blasted the FAA and Boeing today, pretty much saying that the system has failed everybody. Here's what he said to Congress. These crashes are demonstrable evidence that our current system of aircraft design and certification has failed us. These accidents should never have happened. He said that pilots need to be doing more training beyond just reading updates on their iPads, which was a big part of what the MAX was all about, saying that if a pilot was certified on the previous 737s, that they really didn't need simulator time, that they could just read some documents on their iPad and they would be good to go. Even through this process now, Boeing has been saying once they update that software known as the MCAS software, that all the pilots are going to have to do is read about 20 minutes worth of stuff, they'll be good to go. The only certified functioning 737 MAX simulator in the U.S. is in Miami. There is only one right now. That's a problem. Yeah, getting pilots actually in them is an issue. They can use previous model 737 simulators to essentially do the same thing, but actual uh, MAX simulator... There's only one in the U.S. Interestingly, though, Ethiopian Airlines, they've got one, and they're one of the, the airlines that had one of these go down. Wow. So, so Sullenberger said that he, he tried to do this, right, in, in, the, uh, in the simulator? He tried to basically plug in the same factors that we saw in the two crashes? 
Yeah, and he said uh, he could see how these pilots ran out of time, that, that he knew it was coming up, and still he had a very difficult time trying to figure out what to do and how to, to recover the aircraft. And he talked today quite a bit about the surprise factor, the startle factor, that, yeah, as a airplane manufacturer, as a, an agency like uh, the FAA, you can say, well, there are ways to get around these planes going down if you follow this checklist of things to do. And if you remember early on, Boeing kept blaming the pilots, saying it was pilot error. Now they've apologized and, and admitted that there are issues with the planes. But they kept saying, well, the pilots had just followed everything they were supposed to do. They would have been fine. But today, Solenberger was saying, yeah, in a perfect scenario, but you got to remember that you don't know this is going to happen, that you're flying along, and all of a sudden the nose of the plane pretty violently goes down and the plane begins fighting you and you're crashing, that you don't have time to go through this checklist, that you shouldn't have a plane that is fighting against you while, while you're trying to pilot the thing. I read earlier that the unions, the pilot unions for the various airlines, say that uh, it was a problem when the pilots did not know about the software on board the 737 MAX, but now that they do know about it, now that Boeing has finally told them about it after the first Lion Air crash, that they feel comfortable in those aircraft. Uh, is that still the case? Is that what you got from the testimony? Yeah, generally. I mean, they say that they're going to feel safe once this new software update is in there, that they're angry at Boeing. Uh, that, that they were not advised of it. Well, this is the, the chief pilot, American Airlines. He's also the, the union head. Here's how he put it. Boeing designs and engineers and manufactures superb aircraft. Unfortunately, in the case of the MAX, I'll have to agree with Boeing CEO, they let the traveling public down in a fatal and catastrophic way. And he made it very clear today, as American Airlines pilots, they believe these were preventable, and they believe that Boeing let everybody down. But he brings up a point, going back to the simulator for a second, that he said, yeah, it would be great if we could get all of the pilots into a simulator. But he says that at American Airlines, they've got 4,200 737 MAX pilots. And at Southwest, they've got 9,000. So how are they going to get everybody into the one simulator that exists in the U.S. in Miami? And he says, just not possible. He believes there might be some other video simulation they could do it on their ipad they could do it on a home computer where they simulate it like they're flying but getting into a true simulator he said at this point they just can't do that boeing was nowhere to be seen today right no they weren't taking part in this and we've heard quite a bit from them the paris air show has been going on and that's where big deals are ranked that's where airlines go shopping essentially uh, every year and they show off, the, the airplane manufacturers show off what they've got. And they did get a big order yesterday of 737 Maxes from IAG, which owns British Airways, Iberia, a couple of other airlines, Aer Lingus. Um, and they're confident in these. It, it wasn't a true order. It was a letter of intent that IAG signed saying that they want to buy the Maxes. So they're showing some confidence in what the planes will be when they finally fly again. But Dennis Mullenberg, the CEO of Boeing, he has been at the air show. He apologized the other day to, to the families of those, the 346 people who uh, died in the crashes. And he says they should have done better. So Boeing is apologizing, but no, they weren't there today. Awesome. Alex Stone, thank you so much. Appreciate all the info. You got it. Thanks, guys. Alex Stone there with the latest on uh, 
this hearing today, just, uh, Chesley Sullenberger took part in this congressional panel, but Boeing did not. And they're talking about the 737 Maxis. All right, uh, when we come back, Chris Carlo is going to join us. Tell us about what's been going on with this recall effort. Uh, somebody trying to get uh, Mayor Garcetti, almost gave him a promotion and called him governor, Mayor Garcetti, out of office because of the homelessness issue. So let's go back like we've got a recall effort underway wait were john and ken there uh, i'm surprised they were I guarantee you they're going to talk to her today though uh and the mayor himself is supposed to have a news conference as well today talk about homelessness chris and carlo joining us to talk about this recall effort to get garcetti out of office and uh chris looks like homelessness is going to be the main reason is that right that is the key issue, the key reason that uh, these five or six people came to the steps of City Hall and uh, basically kicked off their campaign to recall Mayor Garcetti. Uh, I'm going to be also at that news conference coming up at 2 o'clock where we're hitting the reset button, I think, uh, as far as city officials go on the homelessness issue. And um, there will be questions about this recall effort. There will also be some other questions that I'll get into in a moment. But let's talk about the recall effort. First, they need 315,000 signatures. That's a lot of signatures for anything that you're trying to do. Consider this, that Mayor Garcetti was elected in 2017, 331,000 some change votes. So you need signatures tantamount to the votes that Garcetti was able to achieve in getting his second term in office. That's tough. It's also tough to get people to sign pieces of paper anywhere you go without money. Because often the way this works is you pay signature gatherers or you have some sort of propped up organization in order uh, to get volunteers out on the streets gathering signatures. That also requires money. And from what we heard today, this group has yet to really organize in any fashion to be able to raise money. They have a GoFundMe site, but that's about it. And they have yet to really form any sort of political entity by which they could fundraise and also organize. So they're, they're a little bit behind the ball on this. Furthermore, they have been gathering signatures online, a change.org petition. Uh, about two weeks ago is when it started. Actually, exactly two weeks ago, June 5th is when it started. During that course of time, 9,200 signatures and some change were uh, collected. And I, I did the math on that, and that worked out to uh, 627, uh, 657 signatures per day. And if you extrapolate from there the number of days it would take to collect 315,000 signatures, if you're working at the same pace, it would be 479 days, which basically would be when Garcetti's out of office. Okay, it, sounds like, uh, it sounds like this is a pie-in-the-sky idea. Do you think it was over-covered? Do yes, you think this? Okay. absolutely. And, and here's why. I mean, everybody... Everybody from a news angle is thirsty. Right I mean, it's now a sexy it headline, issue. right? It's a sexy well, headline. A recall yeah, the mayor of Los Angeles, but if it's not a serious one, why is it so overcovered? Because because the drumbeat has been um, has been ferociously anti. I think any city hall right now in terms of the homelessness issue. And so by putting the homelessness issue front and center and combining that with a potential recall effort, uh, you, you know, people look at that and they say, oh, well, maybe a movement is afoot. 
I, I would caution in saying that a movement is afoot. You know, Garcetti won 80% of the vote. I think it was 81% of the vote. And I'm not trying to, you know, tout his his career, his positioning in here, but just realistically from a political standpoint when you're covering this, if, if you're only getting 9,200 uh, signatures over the course of two weeks on an issue that has been covered ad nauseum for these last two weeks, and this is the, this is your high tide, it's going to be incredibly difficult to go out and get 315,000 signatures, and it's much more difficult to get somebody to sign that, that, that piece of paper in real life than it is to sign a change.org petition. Uh, can you talk at all about what the the mayor has planned for t- for today in terms of his announcements about homelessness and the uh, yeah, so, initiatives that he's got? From what I understand, he's going to be up there alongside Mike Bonin, who of course has been at the front and center of this uh, of this issue as well. And, and from what I've gathered, this is going to be a chance for them to say, okay, well, this is our plan moving forward. Basically trying to hit the reset button on this. Um, and it, it's interesting because this recall effort, I think, will make that a little bit more difficult. Uh, but the idea is like, okay, we've made mistakes along the way. And you know, maybe we haven't acted fast enough. And, and maybe we haven't been as responsive as we need to be. This is a follow-up to his letter from last week to the uh, Steve Lopez uh, column from over the weekend where you know, he went out with him all all of these things are, are basically kind of putting the spin on the numbers continuing after we saw that 16 percent increase in the number of homelessness in la city and uh 12 across the county so um that's part of what today is I, i'm curious because what i what i've seen really come to the top of people's minds lately is money and how money's being spent and you know on friday there was 2.7 million dollars that was allocated toward skid row it's heap money heap money is is uh, coming from the governor it's this uh, homelessness emergency action fund and of that of those dollars they broke it down and let me just pull up these numbers real quick because it, it, it's just kind of mystifying to me um, looking at it so they're gonna spend for example sixty thousand dollars Bureau of Sanitation to install and service a total of six sharps collection boxes in Skid Row so again let's do some math there six divided by sixty thousand it's ten thousand per uh, sharp collection boxes. Um, a quick Google search. You go to Amazon.com and buy a Sharps box for more, about 100 bucks. More for everything. Remember that big audit that happened with the federal government? We found out we were spending like $1,400 for a $50 chair or something. Yeah. It's yeah. just insanity. Well, the problem is that when you're flush with money, it's it's easy, not not necessarily always for the government, but maybe for suppliers to the government to take advantage of that. And I think the government is blind to that when they have a ton of money that they're able to spend. And and that's I think where we're go- what we're going to see the pivot on is saying, okay, we've got to find a way to do this quicker and cheaper. Um, you know, there's this great anecdote about Elon Musk. Uh, he was trying to put rockets up in outer space for way less than NASA wanted to, and they needed this piece of equipment in. Uh, uh, in Florida, in order to to work the launch pad, they bought it off of eBay for like a, a quarter of the price that NASA's contractor was willing to to sell it to them for. So they went to eBay and bought this like two hundred fifty thousand dollar gantry tr- crane, and I, I think that's the kind of stuff. Now they're they're trying to think outside the box to solve this problem, which people would argue that probably should have been the way we were doing it from the beginning. All right, mm, the good old gantry tra- uh, crane. Yeah, yeah, that may not be the. Don't don't quote me on that. No, no, it sounds good. Don't don't pull right. back on that. I'll, Say it with I'll confidence. Go, I'll go with. Uh, so you're scheduled to be on with John and Ken today, I assume. 
I believe 5 p.m. Yeah, so that'll be after the mayor and Mike Bonin. All right, Chris, thank you. Anytime, guys. You bet. Chris and Carlo. And again, you can hear him later on with John and Ken as well. The updates on not just the recall, but also the uh, news conference that's going to take place a little bit later today. Coming up next, it is a murder, maybe mystery or attempted murder. We're not going to do the Adam Sandler movie, are we? No. Oh, good. I thought that's what you were talking about. You know what? You you handle the tease. Fine. Uh, There was a murder in the jungle in Seattle, a homeless encampment. Speaking of homelessness, we'll talk to uh, two hosts of a podcast that have looked into this incredibly crazy, twisting murder case out of Seattle. Gary and Shannon will continue right after Gary and Shannon. Well, who knows what Hope Hicks was able to say before that House panel that's looking into potential obstruction of justice by the president. Certain to get more details from Capitol Hill about what she said or didn't say coming up tomorrow. Well, we have been uh, following this case out of Seattle uh, that has drawn a lot of attention. And just a couple of months ago, came to a second mistrial. And this is for uh, a group of brothers. Well, two, two out of three brothers were being tried now, or were being tried in connection with a shooting spree at the caves, which we've talked a lot about homelessness up and down the West Coast. The caves is sort of a a homeless encampment in downtown Seattle. I mean, just right off of one of the freeways. There There is a podcast called Somebody Somewhere. It was created and hosted by former prosecutor David Payne, as well as CNN producer Jody Gottlieb. And they join us now here on the Gary and Shannon show to talk about all the twists and turns of this case that remains still unresolved. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for making some time for us. Thank you so much. So glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Uh, Let's go back to the original case. This was January 2016. Uh, Can you tell us about the the incident, who was involved, and what exactly happened that night? Yeah, it was a pretty straightforward case in terms of what happened. And the evidence was that six to eight masked gunmen stormed this area that you mentioned called the Caves, which is up underneath I-5, our main freeway and was a, was a pretty major homeless encampment. Lots of tents up there and uh, different people uh, that had camped and, and a lot of transients that, frankly, moved through that area. Six to eight guys went up there and shot up uh, the encampment of a drug dealer uh, named Fat Nguyen up there. They shot everybody. They basically came in and shot the whole thing up. Three teenage brothers were arrested for the crime, And it happened on the night that the mayor was giving a major speech on homeless. And as you know, uh, you mentioned it in your introduction, there is a major problem here in Seattle with how to manage the homeless. So this happened right when the political environment was super hot. The mayor was saying we should need to increase taxes, we need to increase the property levy, and the shooting happens while he's live on TV. That confluence of events set off this uh, uh, amazing sequence of city reaction and counter-reaction, moving homeless out of encampments. And it's just a fascinating story as to what happened, not only in the crime itself and how the police investigated the crime, but in how the city reacted to it. 
So there was some confusion whether it was these brothers or other members, uh, higher ranking, I guess you could say, criminals of the Samoan community. Yeah, that's right. And so we delve into that and we go down into the jungle to try to find out exactly what happened. And as you mentioned, the jury has hung twice. So there's a fair amount of evidence in this case that suggests that uh, perhaps the boys were put up to the crime or put up, I'm sorry, put up to confessing to the crime. It's a more accurate way to say it because the police in this case sent an informant into the jungle to try to get confessions from these brothers and they quote unquote confess on the videotape. The big open question is whether they were put up to that confession uh, by the people who actually orchestrated and carried out that uh, crime. What evidence is there to show that they would have been put up to this? So here's here's an interesting, I'll give you one snippet into that, and there's plenty. When the crime happened, one of the victims identified her shooter as a guy named Juice. Juice has not ever been arrested in this case. The brothers were the three people who were arrested, Jerome, James, and Joseph Tafalusia. And the way we got from Juice being named on the scene as the shooter to those three brothers being arrested was an informant came into the police department and said, Juice didn't do the crime. Instead, you should be looking at my nephews, which were James, Jerome, and Joseph. So Juice's brother-in-law is the informant. He comes in and tells police, don't go look at Juice, look at the kids for the crime. Wasn't there and also... So they wire up... Yeah, they. I was just going to add, they wire up uh, these two guys and, and they get video that is central to the case as evidence uh, during the trial. What was on the video? Uh, the it video. was the boys confessing to the um to the murder you know i i'm listening to this and i can't help but think of the netflix series about the central park jogger and the central mm-hmm. park five and kids yeah. and confessions and you know whenever a kid confesses to something there's always a little bit uh, in my head of uh was it coerced was it was it a natural confession and maybe that's just because of the Central Park case being brought to light because of that Netflix special. But Yeah, it's such a suggested environment, and especially with, with kids that are young and uh, influenceable. So there was a three-day gap between the time of the murders and the time that the police sent this informant in to record the confession. Again, the informant is the brother-in-law of the person who is named as the primary suspect on the scene. So you have all sorts of these family issues going on between these various uh, parties. And, you know, it really begs the question as to uh, whether or not these boys were talked into uh, confessing for the murder. And there's evidence that is deduced in the prosecution's own case uh, about who shot who with which gun, which is inconsistent with the videotape confessions. Did Juice so, have a prior a, record? Uh, was there were they was there any evidence that they were trying to protect him from uh, getting a harsher punishment than the kids would get? 
You're going to have to listen to episode two. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, good tease. Which, by the way, you can download the series at uh, somebody somewhere at Apple, TuneIn, and Spotify. So come along for the ride. We've got plenty to say on this. Oh, you can also find it, of course, on uh, on our app, the iHeartRadio app as well. We'll come back and continue with David Payne and Judy Gottlieb, hosts of Somebody Somewhere, this true crime podcast. We've been talking with David Payne and Judy Jody Gottlieb, uh, hosts of Somebody Somewhere, a true crime podcast about the jungle murders out of Seattle in 2016. Uh, three brothers went into a homeless encampment and are accused of shooting the place up. Uh, David, the the youngest of the three brothers, who I think was 13 at the time of the, uh, of the shooting, he was found guilty, wasn't he? He has been found guilty. Of course, that was in a juvenile proceeding, so it was a judge proceeding. Um, and, you know, a much different set of standards that are associated with that type of case. Uh, and, you know, he was a ward of the state. All, all these brothers were uh, in and out of being wards of the state. They kept leaving their foster care, going back to their mother, who also uh, stayed in hotels and lived in tents and cars uh, down in, in Soto. And, uh, but he was... He was um, Adjudicated, I think it's the term they use for a juvenile court rather than uh, found guilty. Uh, and he is in a juvenile facility now until he's 21. So where does the prosecution stand? I'm assuming that they're going to try this case a third time. When does that start or has it already begun? Yep. That starts in November. So the state's going to bring the case again for a third time. Uh, and then the case will start in November in front of a new judge. The judge that presided over the two previous trials has since retired. So, um, you know, we'll be back in the courtroom then. Uh, let me ask in a general uh, general sense, we here in Los Angeles have been dealing with homelessness. I know that Seattle has been dealing with homelessness. Um, uh, we were talking just a couple of weeks ago about that incredible documentary put together by Eric Johnson over at Como TV about Seattle is dying and a lot of it concentrates on some of the issues that come up in this case and specifically in that area of the jungle uh, and these different homeless encampments throughout the city of Seattle. Do you do you feel like these are uh, a sort of a confluence of events where homelessness, uh, drug culture, everything comes together to make this almost a, a perfect story? Not in a positive sense, but... Just in the fact that the characters are hard to pin down, the the crime itself may be difficult to suss out exactly what happened, and there's no real winner in any of this? Yeah, it, it does create a rich tapestry to, to tell stories from because uh, the characters, as you mentioned, are people that you would normally never talk to. They're the type of people you would walk by on the street and avoid at all costs. But when you sit down and spend time with them and hear their stories – it is just eye-opening. It's heartbreaking to hear why some of these people are down there. And there is this element, there's a criminal element that's down in there that preys on a lot of these people. These are people that have, uh, through a variety of circumstances, uh, ended up in the jungle. Some of them voluntary, frankly. You talk about Seattle is dying. Some of them, uh, frankly, casualties of the opioid crisis, uh, drug addiction and the like. Some of them... Uh, you know, have mental health issues. 
So there is so there are so many issues here, and and the great thing about a podcast is you can tell a, a narrative story. It's not a we're not doing a documentary like Seattle is dying and analyzing it from a third third party person perspective. We're really walking through our you know journey into the jungle, uncovering these stories trying to uncover evidence for the uh, case itself. You know, our goal is really to humanize these stories and uh, and connect with people that you wouldn't normally ever in a million years connect with. So, uh, Did you, David and Jody, did you spend a lot of time talking with people that were down in that area? We did. We did. We spent a good bit of time down there. I think that was one of our goals was really to dig in and connect with people and hear their stories and a really unfiltered, unbiased way where we felt like we wanted to to get to know the people that were living there and highlight their stories through this organic process. So we did. We spent a lot of time down in and around the jungle getting to know the community, which frankly ebbs and flows um, and is constantly evolving with people moving, either getting pushed out through uh, city sweeps or, you know, people who are newly homeless and are engaging with other communities. So there's really this incredible tapestry of people that try to support each other um, uh, and and try to help uh, them get through the daily struggles that they're facing. I always love hearing about the genesis of podcasts. Had you two worked together in, in the past or who came up with this or, you know, who, who got on the phone and said, we got to do something about this story? We started that first season. Uh, we had worked together, you know, 20 years ago at CNN and we, we reconnected out here in Seattle. And uh, both of us were looking for some interesting story to tell on a completely different um, trajectory. And we found the Tom Wales murder case. Uh, independently, and that was just serendipitous, and that was great. And then after we had that experience, uh, we said, well, we ought to do this again. And uh, we we found this case, which um, I literally stumbled into a Kent County, uh, Washington courthouse one day looking for stories and found this one, and it was it's a doozy. It's as complicated as the Tom Wills murder case. Uh, just a quick question, if you want to tell me, or this may be a great tease for people to listen to the podcast. Whatever happened to Fat Wynn? He was the drug dealer that they were supposedly targeting that night. He survived the shooting, I know that, but what happened to him? That is episode nine. You are going straight to the, you're going straight to the end. Uh, he did survive. He did survive. He was not... Um, uh, arrested. He let's just say he is uh, still doing a lot of the things that Fett was doing before. Awesome. Well, that's great. <laughs> I'm glad we could help you tease that. Uh, David Payne, <laughs> Jody Gottlieb, hosts of uh, Somebody Somewhere, this new popular true crime prod, uh, podcast uh, that leaves uh, leaves you wanting more. I guess just more information about what's going on. And again. Following this trial, these two trials now that have both ended in hung juries and that third one getting ready to start up in November. Appreciate your time, guys. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. All right. And you can check out, again, the podcast on the iHeartRadio app and a couple of other places. Somebody Somewhere is the name of it. John and Ken show coming up next. We'll see you manana. Stay dry, everybody. Bless Did you have an awesome time? Did you drink awesome shooters and listen to... Gary and Shannon. And then just sit around and soak up each other's awesomeness.